Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. We're going to be back in 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. In the providence of God, the passage that we're going to read this morning as we've been studying through the book of 1 Timothy, it, it focuses our hearts really upon this particular season, and I'm thankful for that. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, and we've been studying through this book for 12 weeks now, and we've just come through the sections on leadership within the church, and then Paul directs the attention of Timothy and us to the ministry of the church and the message of the church, and here's what he tells us. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we study it together? Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for what this season reminds us of, the grand mystery of Your incarnation, the Son of God, clothed in flesh, come to live and die to make us Your people. I thank You for this time. I thank You for the families that are here And I pray that our hearts would be open and receptive to the truth of your word. I pray that you would move among us and accomplish your purpose, whether that is to remind us as believers of the great hope that we have in Christ, or that is to allow the hope of Christ to to fall fresh on the heart of someone who has come, not knowing you, not trusting you, not loving you. Lord, I pray that the gospel would bear fruit today for your glory and for our joy. So take this offering of proclamation and use it for your purposes. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a fierce cultural debate that is rekindled every year during this season, and the debate is about what is the best Christmas movie of all time. Some of you, I don't know about you, we've spent the last three or four days just in the house watching Christmas movies. The debate is subdued in our home, but I don't know, what is it? Is it White Christmas? Or is it It's a Wonderful Life? And if you were born after 1980, you may think, well, wait a minute, what about Home Alone? Or The Grinch? Or Elf? Then then there's the mystery of whether or not Die Hard should even be considered a Christmas movie. You throw that aside if you want. It can be fun to engage in these debates. But if we're not careful, we can allow these things to distract us from what this season is all about. We have gathered, and I've said this several times to this point, we have gathered for a purpose, and that purpose is to remember and celebrate the truth, to remember and celebrate the mystery surrounding Christmas. We've come to remember that Christ the Savior has been born. We've come to marvel that a virgin bore the Son of God, and shepherds were among the first to see Him, and a manger held the hope of the world. 
The Christmas story reveals our God made low so that he could raise us up beyond any height that we could attain on our own. At Christmas, we've come to celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news. And this good news, that's the central message of our faith. And it's, it's really an announcement from God. And it's an announcement from God that he knows us, he knows our problem, and he loves us. He has demonstrated his love to us by sending his son to live and die for us so that by faith in him, we can be forgiven of sin. That's what this season is all about. We can avoid the punishment, the just punishment that we deserve, and we can receive eternal life as a gift by faith. The good news is wrapped in a mystery, and that mystery had been hidden for ages and generations, but it has now been revealed to us. And that's what the Apostle Paul is drawing our attention to. The, the mystery that has been revealed, the, the ministry and message of the church is all wrapped up in this. And it comes right on the heels of Paul's instruction for church leaders, and he draws our attention to this grand mystery. He shifts from what leaders must be in the church to the mission of the church and the message of the church. And he tells us that he wanted to travel and see them, but he wasn't able to do that. And, and we're thankful that he wasn't able to do that because not being able to go and see them face to face caused him to write this letter. And now we have this letter inspired by God preserved for us so that we can benefit from it. And in this passage, it's just three verses. In these three verses, we see two main truths take shape. And that's what we're going to look at. The mission of the church and the message of the church. Let's look first at the mission of the church. Go back to verse 14. He says, I hope to come to you, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, we've been studying that for 12 weeks now, how to behave in the household of God, how things ought to be, how the church should be properly ordered in, in leadership and focus on certain things and not other things. But then he goes on and he says this, the household of God is the church of the living God. And it is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. This time of year, there are dozens of things all fighting for our heart's attention. And as much as we love Christmas, it can be very hectic. Anybody feel the hectic nature of this season? There's a lot of things going on. We spend hours doing things that we don't normally do throughout the year. We spend hours decorating our homes. We spend hours buying gifts. We spend hours on the road traveling to be with family. We, we spend hours preparing meals and, and making sure that all of our holiday traditions are not overlooked, right? And I don't know if you've ever talked to each other about the different holiday traditions that in, are embodied in this family or embodied in this family, but I always find it interesting that, yes, we all share some common holiday traditions, but then there are some things that families do that are just very strange, peculiar things. I won't go into the details, but you, your chuckles let me know that I'm hitting the cord. Every family has their own way of celebrating things their own way of doing things, those pastimes, like how you decorate, how many gifts you give, and when you open those gifts, and what foods you're going to eat. Every family has a certain way of celebrating Christmas, but the unique ways of a family, they don't just exist around Christmas time. Every family has a culture, uh, a way of believing and behaving. It's in the family where we learn 
what is true. We learn about our world. We learn about our place in the world. We learn about basic morality and how to live according to those principles. And then when we venture out from the family, we take those truths and values with us. And that's an important way for us to think here because Paul has just reminded us that we are the household of God. We are the family of God. And this peculiar way of doing things is also unique to our family as Christians. There are critical theological truths that our faith rests upon as the household of God. And Paul has written this letter to help us to know those truths and and how to live in light of them. And, And just so we're clear, these truths aren't negotiable because God is the head of the household. We don't get to pick and choose what we want and what we're going to stand on and what we're going to proclaim. God is the one who determines that for us. And this is not just some old dead thing that we can reinvent. No, the Bible tells us clearly that these, this is the church of the living God. And that's an interesting phrase. The living God has given us a mission, and that mission is to be a pillar and a buttress for his truth. Now, why did I stress the fact that he is the living God? It, it is an odd phrase. We learn about God in the Old Testament. We learn that he has a personal name. He is Yahweh, but we also learn that he is the living God. And that phrase, the living God, theologically, is to put him in contrast to the, the lifeless idols of paganism. He's not silent. He, he, he's not just carved out of stone and set in a building. No, he is the living God. He is the living God who spoke, has spoken to his people. He's the living God who spoke to Moses from a burning bush. He's the living God who dwells in the midst of his people. He guides them by fire in the night and fights their enemies while they stand and watch. But here's a question. Where does the living God live? Well, we learn that he lives within the hearts of his people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we read this, For we, talking about believers, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, in this age, on this side of the cross, the Spirit of God dwells in the hearts of all believers. He has taken up residence in those who trust in Christ by faith. And then Jesus adds to that this amazing promise that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. No matter what, the Lord dwells with his people. And as the Spirit-filled household of God, we have a mission that our Father has given to us, a mission that we are to attend to, and, and it is to uphold the truth as a pillar and a buttress. And this, this familiar terminology, I'm sure you understand some of this. A, a buttress, uh, the buttress of a building is the main structural support of a building. The pillars are those tall vertical structures that support the weight of the building. And the point is that the pillar and the buttress hold the building aloft so that it, it can be enjoyed, so that it can stand in the way that it was supposed to stand. And that's part of our responsibility as the church is to uphold the truth. And this might sound strange because there are other places in Scripture that tell us that we are built on the foundation of the truth. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, the idea, the picture here is strange. So the truth is underneath us, but we're also to hold it up. Now, is that a contradiction? No, it's not. 
In fact, we see this in, in many different places in the New Testament, that we are to hold firmly to the truth, and that we are to hold forth the truth. So we don't abandon the foundation that we stand upon, but we uphold the truth, the unchanging truth of God's Word. That is our mission, and that's what Paul is drawing our attention to here. The church is built upon the truth, but we also, as our everyday mission, we hold the truth high, proclaiming it to the world. And our mission hasn't changed, but it seems that many churches have lost sight of it. Our mission is not to be cute. Our mission is not to be novel. Our mission is not to engage with all the cultural idols so that we can find some unspoken or hidden connection to the gospel. Our mission is not to be change agents in the social justice movement. Our mission is to proclaim the truth of God in season and out of season. And this brings up a very important question. What is the truth that we are to proclaim? What is the primary message of the church? What is the central truth that we are to preach? Well, Paul talks about that. Look at verse 16. He he identifies the message of the church. He's given us our mission to uphold the truth, to proclaim the truth. Now, what is it that we are to proclaim? Verse 16, we confess the mystery of godliness, which is that he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now, in in your Bible, if you're looking at it, you can see that that phrase there, that mystery of godliness, our confession, it it is indented. It's something of a poem, or actually most people believe it's a, something of a hymn. It's a Christian hymn, and it highlights the fact that our message, the central truth of our message is Christ. The central truth that we are to proclaim is Jesus Christ, his divine and human identity, as well as his finished work on the cross. Our mission is to proclaim Christ to the world. And Paul uses a term that he used uh, just a few verses ago. He uses the term mystery again to summarize our Christian message. And that word mystery means something that's hidden, something that we can't see. And what he's drawing our attention to is that that mystery has been revealed. The hidden oracle of God has been made known, and it has been made known. It has been revealed to us and to the world in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and glory of Jesus. And at this time of year, Our thoughts and our emotions are stirred to think about the birth of Christ, and for good reason. This is one of the grand miracles of our faith, the Son of God coming into the world enrobed in flesh. Christmas is our celebration of the Messiah coming into the world humble and vulnerable as a newborn. And just last week in our Christmas program, we read the story of Mary and Joseph. We, we read of the visit of the angels and the miraculous promise of God that Mary, though a virgin, would conceive by the Holy Spirit the very Son of God who would save God's people from their sins. We, we read about this, but do we slow down and think just how profound it is? The Jews wanted Jesus to come and save them from the tyranny of Rome. They wanted him to come and save them from poverty And make them a prominent nation once again. But God's plan was to send his son to save us from the greatest enemy we face in this life. Our own sin. And the judgment that it brings. But how can a man or how can even a baby 
save us from our sins. That's the mystery. And Paul explains it by pointing to the fact that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. You see that in the very beginning of this hymn? He was manifested in the flesh. Manifest is not a word we use that often. It it means something is being revealed. It means something is being exposed. And the mystery of God's plan to save his people was revealed, was made clear when his son was born in human flesh. Now, I keep using these terms, and it's strange. There's actually another term. There's a theological term that we use to try to make sense out of the Son of God being clothed in flesh. The term is incarnation. And it might be a new term for you, so let me define it. Incarnation is the act whereby the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, without ceasing to be what He is, took upon Himself human nature. Here's another explanation. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. We sing all of these hymns that we've been singing about. Yes, they stress the, the prophet, priest, and kingly offices of Jesus, but they also they, they declare this mystery of the union of God and man. Another quote, that which is beyond all space and time, which is uncreated and eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descending into his own universe, and then rose again, bringing nature up with him. It's a staggering thought. Jesus, the infinitely holy and pure Son of God, humbled himself and became a human child to save mankind from sin. To say that Jesus humbled himself is a bit of an an understatement because the incarnation is the greatest act of humility the universe has ever seen. But how did it happen? How does that take place? The truth is we don't fully know. We don't understand it. We cannot fully wrap our finite minds around God's infinite plan, but the incarnation remains true, though it is mysterious to us. And we sing about it like, Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. God did not simply send another flawed human leader. God the Son, the second person of the eternal triune God, became a man clothed in flesh to die in the place of sinners as the crescendo of God's plan. Christ took our flesh upon him so that he might take our sins upon him. In order for man to have peace with God, a man must pay the price. So Christ maintained his deity because only a perfect son could fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, and only one who is fully God and truly man could bring peace between God and man. And so the incarnation of Christ is this miracle of God that makes our salvation a reality. He is the one mediator who can bring lasting peace. So Jesus is the Son of God clothed in flesh, fully human, truly God. Or to quote Paul in the book of Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
You see, what the Scriptures tell us, though we can't fully understand it, is that Jesus Christ existed long before He filled that manger in Bethlehem. But on the first Christmas, He came to earth, revealing God's answer to humanity's greatest need. Not only was He manifested in the flesh, but He was vindicated by the Spirit. Or more accurately, he's, well, what does vindication mean? It it means that what he has done proves his identity. He was proved by the Spirit. So, what is that referring to? I think it's referring to specifically the resurrection of Jesus. When we get to this hymn, we want it to fit chronologically. I don't think it all fits in chronologically. But vindication means to clear someone of blame or to prove someone right. And it was in his resurrection from the dead that served as the greatest proof that everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did got, its, got the stamp of approval from God the Father. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was the Son of God. He spoke the words of the Father. He was completely faithful to God's plan. And even though the world rejected him, God the Father fully approved of his Son fully vindicated in what he had done. Not only was he vindicated by the Spirit, but he was seen by angels. Do y'all remember in, in the resurrection stories when, when the disciples go back to the tomb to see Jesus? They don't see Jesus. They see an empty tomb. But what do they see? Well, there are angels present answering questions, explaining things. The angels were there to witness Christ's resurrection. They were the first ones at the tomb before the friends arrived. The angels saw it. And this paints a picture of both heaven and earth bearing witness to Christ's victory. He was proclaimed among the nations. That one's not hard to understand. This is referring to the church's mission to to preach the gospel, to preach Christ crucified to the men and women of every tribe and tongue and nation. Like I said earlier, our mission is to preach Christ. The disciples from that day forward began to prepare themselves. And then when the Spirit of God fell on Pentecost, they began to proclaim that He has been raised from the dead. And the good news of what Christ accomplished was preached far and wide. The New Testament shows us the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then on to the rest of the earth. And the message of Christ is the greatest news in all the world. The church is tasked with taking this message across every man-made border on earth. God's covenant love is no longer exclusive to the Jews. It is for every Gentile to hear. So we preach Christ to all with no prejudice, with no exclusion, because the Lamb of God will receive the full reward of His suffering. He will be proclaimed among the nations. And then look at the next phrase. He is believed on in the world. And if it wasn't personal to you until this point, this is where it becomes very personal to all of us. If you're a believer today, this phrase is talking about you. The good news of Christ, His manifestation in the flesh, His vindication by the Spirit, His proclamation to the nations now has come to you. And you believe in Christ today because of God's plan. In the eternal counsel of God, He made a plan to call forth a people from death to life for His own glory. And in time, or as the New Testament says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, 
born of a virgin, born in humility, to live a righteous life so that he could serve as the perfect sacrifice for sin. He went to the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He paid the price to make our atonement for us, and then he grants to us his perfect righteousness to all those who believe. That's the message that is proclaimed, and that's the message that we believe. And in believing that message, we become we become aware of the fact that we're part of the plan of God. The message of his sacrificial love spread in the New Testament from town to town and nation to nation across borders and oceans until it was preached in your hearing. And then whether it was a preacher or a friend or a CD or an MP3 or a podcast, that gospel message was proclaimed in your hearing and God opened your heart and mind to both believe in Christ and to receive him as Savior, Lord, and King. You believe today because God has accomplished his plan of redemption. You believe today because Jesus Christ was faithful to the end. You believe today because the good news of Jesus is still being proclaimed all over the world, and his people believe in him. Now the last phrase in this hymn, it points to the fact that the baby born in the manger who accomplished the saving plan of God has been exalted to receive his reward. Look at what it says. Four simple words, taken up in glory. There's, there's some juxtaposition happening here. He was manifested in the flesh, taken up in glory. Started out in flesh, the end was his glorification. Now some think this phrase refers to the second coming of Christ, but I think it's best to interpret this as his return to heaven in the ascension that took place after the cross. This hymn is telling us that he came to earth in human flesh and it ends by telling us that he was taken up in heaven because he had accomplished his purpose. The author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 10, that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And so here's what we understand now. The Lord is waiting He's completed his task. He's returned to the Father. He sits at the Father's side. He pleads for his people, but he will come again. And when he comes again, he will rule and reign over all. And until that day comes, we have a mission. And that mission is to proclaim the gospel in every corner of the earth. And as his people today, we await the day when our Savior, the lowly Savior, born in a manger, will return in splendor to establish his throne for eternity. This is what we're celebrating. This is the gospel message. This is what Christmas is all about. And I know I've been here for 14 years. I've been preaching the same message for 14 years. You know I'm going to say incarnation, and I'm going to explain it because I'm more fond of incarnation day than I am Christmas. But we just need to be constantly reminded of what this is all about, what we're here doing. We're celebrating God made low so that he could raise us up by his grace and for his glory. This is the mission and message of the church. This is the reason for the season. This is our story. This is the song that we sing. This is the most important thing that we believe. And it's the most important thing that you must hear and respond to right now. You know, I started with jokingly looking at that cultural debate about movies. And one of the things that is made clear in the things that we debate around Christmas is that our culture doesn't need Jesus. It just needs movies and Christmas music and gifts but we need Jesus. The culture may not want Christ in Christmas, but we do. 
Because the true meaning of Christmas is celebrating the coming of the Son of God into the world. It's the celebration of God coming into the world to save us, to save the world from itself. It's a celebration of God's love for undeserving sinners so that we can be returned to God and our exile from Him will come to an end. This is the mystery we celebrate today. And this is the mystery we celebrate every day because Christ is the only hope of salvation for sinners like you and me. So come and behold Him. Born the King of angels. Come and adore Him, Christ the Lord. If you're a believer in Christ today, you have something worth celebrating and remembering. And you should take the time to slow down and ponder and thank God for the mystery and miracle of Christmas. But if you're not a believer, I want you to know that you can get in on this today. Here's the truth. We're all broken and sinful people. We're all filled with dark thoughts and a dark past. We are all more sinful than we care to admit. But this season reminds us that God is more loving than we could ever imagine. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So friend, recognize your need of him. Let your heart be humbled by the love displayed in his sacrifice and receive him today with the empty hands of faith. Let me pray for us. Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for what it shows us, what it reminds us, what it declares to us, what it reveals to us, not only about you and your love, but also about us and our need. I thank you for this season, and, and I thank you for the, the, the holiday celebrations. I thank you for family being together. I thank you that we have something to celebrate, but let our hearts be focused on you, what you've done for us, the greatest gift that could ever be given, the gift of Christ. And let that bear fruit in our hearts, not just in this moment, not just today, but every day. Let every day be Christmas for us in the sense that we recognize and remember and live as though Christmas is a reality, because it is. So would you accomplish that in our hearts and help us to celebrate and praise you for all that you've done? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.